This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Secret Chambers and Hiding Places Historic, Romantic, and Legendary Stories and Traditions About Hiding Holes, Secret Chambers, etc. By Alan Fee Reader's Note It is very well worth downloading the HTML version of this book from Gutenberg. That's Gutenberg e-text 13918 to see the illustrations that go with the text. Also, in the original text, there are many authors' footnotes giving references to other works. Most of these have been left out of the reading. End of reader's note. Introduction The secret chamber is unrivaled even by the haunted house for the mystery and romance surrounding it. Volumes have been written about the haunted house, while the secret chamber has found but few exponents. The ancestral ghost has had his day, and to all intents and purposes is dead, notwithstanding the existence of the Psychical Society and the investigations of Mr. Stead and the late Lord Bute. Alas, poor ghost! He is treated with scorn and derision by the multitude in these advanced days of modern enlightenment. The searchlight of science has penetrated even into his sacred haunts, until, no longer having a leg to stand upon, he has fallen from the exalted position he occupied for centuries, and fallen, moreover, into ridicule. In the secret chamber, however, we have something tangible to deal with, a subject not only keenly interesting from an antiquarian point of view, but one deserving the attention of the general reader, for in exploring the gloomy hiding-holes, concealed apartments, passages, and staircases, in our old halls and manor-houses, we probe, as it were, into the very groundwork of romance. We find actuality to support the weird and mysterious stories of fiction, which those of us who are honest enough to admit a lingering love of the marvellous must now doubly appreciate, from the fact that our school-day impressions of such things are not only revived, but are strengthened with the semblance of truth. Truly, Bishop Copleston wrote, if the things we hear told be avowedly fictitious, and yet curious or affecting or entertaining, we may indeed admire the author of the fiction, and may take pleasure in contemplating the exercise of his skill. But this is a pleasure of another kind, a pleasure wholly distinct from that which is derived from discovering what was unknown, or clearing up what was doubtful. And even when the narrative is in its own nature, such as to please us and to engage our attention, how greatly is the interest increased if we place entire confidence in its truth! Who has not heard from a child when listening to a tale of deep interest? Who has not often heard the artless and eager question, Is it true? From Horace Walpole, Mrs. Radcliffe, Scott, Victor Hugo, Dumas, Lytton, Ainsworth, Le Fanu, and Mrs. Henry Wood, down to the latest up-to-date novelists of to-day, the secret chamber, an ingenious necessity of the good old times, has afforded invaluable property. Indeed, in many instances the whole vitality of a plot 
is, like its ingenious opening, hinged upon the masked wall, behind which lay concealed what hidden mysteries, what undreamed-of revelations. The thread of the story, like Fair Rosamund's silken clue, leads up to, and at length reveals, the buried secret, and, unlike the above comparison in this instance, all ends happily. Bulwer-Lytton honestly confesses that the spirit of romance in his novels was greatly due to their having been written at my ancestral home, Nebworth, Hearts. How could I help writing romances? He says, after living amongst the secret panels and hiding-places of our dear old home. How often have I trembled with fear at the sound of my own footsteps, when I ventured into the picture-gallery. How fearfully have I glanced at the faces of my ancestors, as I peered into the shadowy abysses of the secret chamber. It was years before I could venture inside, without my hair literally bristling with terror. What would Woodstock be? without the mysterious picture, Peveril of the Peak, without the sliding panel, the Castlewood of Esmond, without Father Holt's concealed apartments, Ninety-three, Marguerite de Valois, the Tower of London, Guy Fawkes, and countless other novels of the same type, without the convenient contrivances of which the dramatis personae make such effectual use. Apart, however, from the importance of the secret chamber in fiction, it is closely associated with many an important historical event. The stories of the gunpowder plot, Charles II's escape from Worcester, the Jacobite risings of 1715 and 1745, and many another stirring episode in the annals of our country speak of the service it rendered to fugitives in the last extremity of danger. When we inspect the actual walls of these confined spaces that saved the lives of our ancestors, how vividly we can realize the hardships they must have endured! And in wondering at the mingled ingenuity and simplicity of construction, there is also a certain amount of comfort to be derived from drawing a comparison between those troublous and our own more peaceful times. CHAPTER One. A GREAT DEVISER OF PRIESTS' HOLES During the deadly feuds which existed in the Middle Ages, when no man was secure from spies and traitors even within the walls of his own house, it is no matter of wonder that the castles and mansions of the powerful and wealthy were usually provided with some precaution in the event of a sudden surprise, that is to say, a secret means of concealment or escape that could be used at a moment's notice but the majority of secret chambers and hiding-places in our ancient buildings owe their origin to religious persecution, particularly during the reign of Elizabeth, when the most stringent laws and oppressive burdens were inflicted upon all persons who professed the tenets of the Church of Rome. In the first years of the Virgin Queen's reign, all who clung to the older forms of the Catholic faith were mercifully connived at, so long as they solemnized their own religious rites within their private dwelling-houses. But after the Roman Catholic rising in the north, and numerous other popish plots, the utmost severity of the law was enforced, particularly against seminarists, whose chief object was, as was generally believed, to stir up their disciples in England against the Protestant Queen. 
an act was passed prohibiting a member of the church of rome from celebrating the rites of his religion on pain of forfeiture for the first offence a year's imprisonment for the second and imprisonment for life for the third footnote in december fifteen ninety one a priest was hanged before the door of a house in Gray's Inn Fields, for having there said Mass the month previously. End of footnote. All those who refused to take the oath of supremacy were called recusants, and were guilty of high treason. A law was also enacted which provided that if any papist should convert a Protestant to the Church of Rome, both should suffer death as for high treason. The sanguinary laws against seminary priests and recusants were enforced with the greatest severity after the discovery of the gunpowder plot. These were revived for a period in Charles II's reign, when Oates's plot worked up a fanatical hatred against all professors of the ancient faith. In the mansions of the old Roman Catholic families we often find an apartment in a secluded part of the house, or garret in the roof, named the chapel where religious rites could be performed with the utmost privacy, and close-handy was usually an artfully contrived hiding-place, not only for the officiating priest to slip into in case of emergency, but also where the vestments, sacred vessels, and altar furniture could be put away at a moment's notice. It appears from the writings of Father Tanner that most of the hiding-places for priests, usually called priests' holes, were invented and constructed by the Jesuit Nicholas Owen, a servant of Father Garnet, who devoted the greater part of his life to constructing these places in the principal Roman Catholic houses all over England. With incomparable skill, says an authority, he knew how to conduct priests to a place of safety along subterranean passages, to hide them between walls and bury them in impenetrable recesses, and to entangle them in labyrinths and a thousand windings. But what was much more difficult of accomplishment, he so disguised the entrances to these as to make them most unlike what they really were. Moreover, he kept these places so close a secret with himself that he would never disclose to another the place of concealment of any Catholic. He alone was both their architect and their builder, working at them with inexhaustible industry and labour, for generally the thickest walls had to be broken into, and large stones excavated, requiring stronger arms than were attached to a body so diminutive as to give him the nickname of Little John, and by this his skill many priests were preserved from the prey of persecutors. Nor is it easy to find any one who has not often been indebted for his life to Owen's hiding-places." How effectually little John's peculiar ingenuity baffled the exhaustive searches of the pursuivants, or priest-hunters, has been shown by contemporary accounts of the searches that took place, frequently, in suspected houses. Father Gerard, in his autobiography, has handed down to us many curious details of the mode of procedure upon these occasions, how the search-party would bring with them skilled carpenters and masons, and try every possible expedient, from systematic measurements and soundings, to bodily tearing down the panelling and pulling up the floors. It was not an uncommon thing for a rigid search to last a fortnight, and for the pursuivants to go away empty-handed, 
while perhaps the object of the search was hidden the whole time within a wall's thickness of his pursuers, half-starved, cramped, and sore with prolonged confinement, and almost afraid to breathe, lest the least sound should throw suspicion upon the particular spot where he lay immured. After the discovery of the gunpowder plot, Little John and his master, Father Garnet, were arrested at Hindlip Hall, Worcestershire, from information given to the government by Catesby's servant, Bates. Cecil, who was well aware of Owen's skill in constructing hiding-places, wrote exultingly, Great joy was caused all through the kingdom by the arrest of Owen, knowing his skill in constructing hiding-places, and the innumerable number of these dark holes which he had schemed for hiding priests throughout the kingdom. He hoped that great booty of priests might be taken in consequence of the secrets Owen would be made to reveal, and directed that first he should be coaxed if he be willing to contract for his life, but that the secret is to be wrung from him. The horrors of the rack, however, failed in its purpose. His terrible death is thus briefly recorded by the governor of the tower at that time. The man is dead. He died in our hands. And perhaps it is as well the ghastly details did not transpire in his report. The curious old mansion, Hindlip Hall, pulled down in the early part of the last century, was erected in 1572 by John Abingdon, or Happington, whose son Thomas, the brother-in-law of Lord Monteagle, was deeply involved in the numerous plots against the reformed religion. A long imprisonment in the tower for his futile efforts to set Mary Queen of Scots at liberty, far from curing the dangerous schemes of this zealous partisan of the luckless Stuart heroine, only kept him out of mischief for a time. No sooner had he obtained his freedom than he set his mind to work to turn his house in Worcestershire into a harbour of refuge for the followers of the older rites. In the quaint irregularities of the masonry, free scope was given to little John's ingenuity. Indeed, there is every proof that some of his masterpieces were constructed here. A few years before the powder plot was discovered, it was a hanging matter for a priest to be caught celebrating the Mass. Yet, with the facilities at Hindlip, he might do so with comfort with every assurance that he had the means of evading the law. The walls of the mansion were literally riddled with secret chambers and passages. There was little fear of being run to earth with hidden exits everywhere. Wainscoting, solid brickwork, or stone hearth were equally accommodating, and would swallow up fugitives wholesale, and close over them, to open sesame again only at the hider's pleasure. End of chapter 1